Blog Talk Radio. From Live in the Balance, the nonprofit organization committed to advocating on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their caregivers, this is Dr. Ross Green. Welcome to Collaborative Problem Solving at School. I'm delighted that you were able to join in. This program airs live each Monday at 3.30 p.m. Eastern Time during the school year. We explore a variety of topics aimed at helping you better understand and help challenging students and implement the collaborative problem-solving approach in your classroom and your school. If you have a question or comment, call 646-727-2691. If you call in, you'll be muted until I bring you on the air. And now, let's talk about challenging kids and how we can help them. Well, hello there, and uh, welcome to the program. I'm really glad that uh, you were able to listen in whenever you're listening in, um, live, archives on the Lives in the Balance website, iPod. Uh, It's so cool that um, so many people are listening in and hopefully finding this to be useful um, I'm really glad about that. Um, well, what's going on in your building with collaborative problem solving? What's going on in your building with behaviorally challenging kids? What we're going to do today is catch up on some email that uh, came in over the summer or just before the end of the school year last year. And uh, then uh, some highlights moving forward um, don't remember if I talked about this last week on our first uh, collaborative problem-solving at school of the school year, but, um, well, we're going to be starting with a new school this year, Anytown Elementary. As you probably know, we've had Anytown High School as a running feature on this program for about the last, oh, year and a half. And uh, there's a whole bunch, maybe 20, if I'm not mistaken, programs in the listening library for Anytown High School to help you hear uh, how the school staff at an urban high school in the eastern time zone of North America uh, learned how to do collaborative problem solving on live web-based radio. Now that takes some courage, although I think we've done a pretty good job of keeping the identity of Anytown High School a secret. We're going to do the same for Anytown Elementary, a slight shift there in the central time zone of North America. An added feature uh, of the Anytown Elementary program, something we didn't do, uh, excuse me, series, something we didn't do with the Anytown High School folks is that the Anytown Elementary um, staff are going to be recording their efforts Uh, in using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and recording their use of Plan B. Um, And we're going to be playing those recordings on web-based radio so you can hear my feedback and my coaching and you can hear people actually doing Plan B and sitting in meetings in which the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems is being used. Um, Cool, eh? That's that's actually how 
my colleagues and I do supervision with the many different schools and inpatient units and residential facilities and prisons that we work with. We we listen to people trying to apply the model. We 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 have them record what they're doing. We listen. We give them feedback. They get better. We get enough recordings. They're good at collaborative problem solving. So we're going to be working with Anintown Elementary School in exactly that way during this school year. Not sure when the first program is going to be. It could be next week. It could be, well, it won't be the week after if I've got my schedule straight here because the week after is going to be the first week of October, and that means it will be another educators panel uh, on this program. Let me just double-check that. So I don't know if we're going to be starting that next week or in two weeks, but it will be on a consistent schedule thereafter. And um, I think it will be a very nice addition to the program and a very nice addition to our listening library. Real people doing real plan B in real schools with real kids and getting real feedback and coaching on it. Um, well, that's you know what we are busy spending our time on here at Lives in the Balance. How can we make this model as accessible as possible to people and do it for free. Speaking of free, the second annual Lives in the Balance conference is in Portland, Maine on November 16th. We've announced that on the Lives in the Balance website, but more details will be posted on the website and a registration form uh, probably later this week. If not later this week, then first thing next week. And, um, well, our first one, and you can still see highlights of the first one in the annual conference section on the Lives in the Balance website, so you can see what the first one was like. Um, this one is going to be almost totally oriented toward schools, and specifically we're going to be highlighting that's been going on, the work that's been going on in the schools in Maine, state of Maine, in a project funded by the Maine Juvenile Justice Advisory Group where collaborative problem solving is being implemented in 14 different schools geographically distributed throughout the state. And the, uh, those schools are going to be featured at the second annual Lives in the Balance conference because um, they got some great data and they got some great guidance to give people who work in schools for how to implement collaborative problem solving school-wide. Um, November 16th, Portland, Maine, details on the Lives in the Balance website shortly along with a registration form. Oh, how did I get on the topic of the first of the second annual Lives in the Balance conference? It's free, too. You, you just got to show up. I mean, we can't pay for you to get here. Can't pay for your hotel room. We'll give you some nice food during the day, but the nicest thing about the conference is you're going to be getting some great information from people who've been uh, doing collaborative problem solving, living collaborative problem solving, figuring out how to spread it in their buildings. And um, as you may also know, there's a new website that will be launched before the conference. 
featuring the same schools. Each of them will have their own page on the website. I'll announce that as soon as it happens. They'll have their own page on the website uh, telling people how they did it, where they're at, what hurdles they overcame, along with streaming video from each building with the folks who did the hard work and um, who will tell you there's no turning back now. Um, by the way, Lies in the Balance is now located in Portland, Maine. So much collaborative problem-solving going on in this state. Well, it just made sense to it just made sense to move here. So I'm up here now with my family, and so is Lies in the Balance. Uh, we've just hired a new associate director, Sheila Nee, and um, all we're about is trying to figure out how we can help you implement collaborative problem solving and get it into as many families and schools and inpatient units and residential facilities and prisons as we possibly can so that kids are benefiting from the model. I think, uh, oh, so here's the deal. Um, if we don't have any town elementary next week, we'll start up in October. Next week, what we'll do instead, if we can't quite pull off having any town start next week, uh, I'll probably do some interviewing of some of the staff in the schools that are participating in the project in Maine so that you can hear from them directly and hear how they're doing. So one way or the other, next week's program will be informative. That's the hope. Shall we turn to some questions that came up over the summer that we are just getting to. I feel bad about that. Here's question number one. And I don't know, if you listened to the parents' program this morning, we did a little reviewing. Uh, the first question that was asked in one of the emails that came in for the parents' program over the summer was a mom was describing what she was doing with her behaviorally challenging son or sons and asked, um, how do I know I'm doing Plan B? Am I doing this right? I think we're going to start this program off in the exact same way, just to make sure we've got a level playing field and everybody knows what we're talking about here. So here's question number one. I'm not making this up. This is an uh, email that we received at the end of July. Um, Dr. Green, we are wondering what you do if you have a student that is fighting on the playground. How do you handle it with the different plans? All right. Um, Fighting is a behavior. You're doing plan B. Plan B starts with a highly specific unsolved problem. So this goes back to the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and how you're using it probably in a school meeting to identify the lagging skills and unsolved problems of a student who you're hoping to help and who you're hoping to understand. And if you haven't listened to it, I would strongly recommend that you go to the Listening Library for Educators, because I'm not going to go into great detail here, but you can get a lot of detail on how to use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems. In other words, how to identify a student's lagging skills and unsolved problems in the Listening Library of Collaborative Problem Solving at School, the Listening Library for Educators. If you go to the listening library and go to the educator program, you'll see that the programs are organized by topic. And I think about six topics down, 
is a, pro, is a section called Using the Assessment of Lagging Skills in Unsolved Problems. If you click on that, the first program at the top is also called Using the Assessment of Lagging Skills in Unsolved Problems. Listen to that program for 45 minutes, and you'll know how to use the Assessment of Lagging Skills in Unsolved Problems. Briefly, here's what you're going to hear. Um, you're going to hear that the Assessment of Lagging Skills in Unsolved Problems, if you're unfamiliar with it, uh, contains a list of skills frequently found lacking in behaviorally challenging kids, and then a place to write in the unsolved problems that are associated with those lagging skills. Unsolved problems are examples of times when a kid's lagging skills caused him difficulty, set in motion challenging behavior. Um, and there are some guidelines for writing in unsolved problems. Unsolved problems are not the kids' challenging behaviors. Fighting is a behavior. That's not not going to do it. It's not specific enough, and a lot of kids, it's not specific enough for us to know exactly what we're working on, although we might think it is. Um, he He's fighting in response to a certain unsolved problem. Um, difficulty agreeing on the rules during the box ball game. Um, difficulty resolving disputes with Tommy during the softball game. Just using playground examples here because that's what it says. Um, difficulty, oh, notice what I'm doing here. I'm starting all of the unsolved problems with the word difficulty. It's actually pretty good form for writing unsolved problems. Difficulty, and then the expectation the kid is having difficulty needing. So while fighting is a behavior, and I've got it that it's going on on the playground, and that, that's actually a good start on making it more specific because making an unsolved problem more specific means including information about who, so I want to know who he's fighting with, what, over what are they fighting, and we've already covered where and when, the playground. Who's he fighting with, and over what? Tommy, over the rules of the box ball game, Stevie over uh, what's going on on the jungle gym or in the softball game. The expectation the student who is fighting is having difficulty meeting is having difficulty mm, resolving disputes, if that's what the fighting's about, I'm guessing. We don't want to guess. We want to nail it, but I'm guessing because I don't have our emailer on the line with me right now. Oh, by the way, before I forget, the call-in number. I always forget the call-in number. You can call in 646-727-2691, 646-727-2691. Having trouble resolving disputes and then with who, over what, and on the playground, that would make for a very nice, specific, unsolved problem. I'm going to make one up. 
difficulty resolving disputes with Tommy over the rules of the box ball game during recess. That's specific. Uh, doesn't include any challenging behavior. Sometimes you throw kids... See, here's the deal. The unsolved problem that we write in on the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, first of all, good form to make sure that it's specific so that everybody knows what we're working on, both the people who want to work on it with the kid and the kid himself. Secondly, you throw a kid's behavior at him. The, the wording of the unsolved problem is going to translate almost directly into how you're introducing the unsolved problem to the kid when you're trying to do plan B with him proactively. Throw a kid's behavior at him unnecessarily. A lot of kids get defensive and they won't talk to you. And you want the kid to talk to you because you want to be gathering information from him about what's going on. His point of view, his concern, his perspective on the unsolved problem of him having difficulty resolving disputes with Tommy during a box ball game on the playground. We want info. We're more likely to get info if we don't throw the kid's challenging behavior at him. We're also more likely to get the information we're looking for if we don't throw theories into the unsolved problem. One of the most important things about having a discussion with the ALSIP as a discussion guide is that people stick with lagging skills and unsolved problems and not theories. If theories are what we're talking about in a meeting, then the unsolved problem would sound like this. Difficulty fighting on the playground cause he doesn't feel like dealing with it a better way. I think, I think we don't need adult theories in there. Truth is, when you're filling, when you're having the discussion using the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems as a discussion guide, not the goal is not to explain the unsolved problems. No, there's no explaining going on in this meeting. We just want to get the clearest sense possible of the lagging skills that are making it hard for this kid to behave adaptively. And we want to get a clear sense of the full range of unsolved problems that are reliably and predictably setting in motion challenging episodes. The assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems sets the stage for all that is to come. Because after we know what unsolved problems are in that big pile, probably that big mountain of unsolved problems that have accumulated over time, we're going to have to prioritize so we know what we're working on and what we're not. Otherwise, we'll end up trying to work on everything, thereby guaranteeing that we solve nothing. Try to work on everything, you'll solve nothing. Pick two or three, work on those, and then slowly but surely start working on the rest once you've got some of the other ones solved. So, what do you do if you have a student who's fighting on the playground? First, you document that as an unsolved problem, and maybe there are different unsolved problems that are setting in motion fighting on the playground. This brings up another guideline. You want to split your unsolved problems, not clump them. What does that mean? 
Difficulty resolving conflict on the playground sounds clumped to me, especially if the kid is having difficulty resolving conflict in a wide variety of circumstances. Each of those circumstances, each of those conditions is its own unsolved problem. That's called splitting them, not clumping them. Is that going to make the list of unsolved problems bigger? Yeah. Yeah. those unsolved problems have piled up over time. I, to tell you the truth, I'd rather have a sense of the mountain of unsolved problems that need to be solved with this kid than clump them and and make it harder to solve them. You clump them, it's harder to solve them. So, for example, if you say to a kid in the beginning of Plan B, I've noticed that you're having difficulty resolving conflict on the playground, First of all, he's got to think of all the circumstances in which he's having trouble resolving conflict on the playground. That's probably going to be a bit overwhelming to think about. So he might say, I don't know, or he might say nothing at all. It's going to make it harder for us to get information about each specific unsolved problem that he's having difficulty resolving. I'd, I'd rather have the total picture. He might be having difficulty resolving conflict with Tommy over box ball for completely different reasons than he's having trouble resolving conflict with Joey on the jungle gym. Of course, it's possible that his concerns are the same on both, but I'd go into it thinking they're not. I'd split those unsolved problems, not clump them. So there's there's some general guidelines, and we haven't even started handling difficulty resolving conflict on the playground yet, which is making sure we've we know about all the different circumstances in which that's coming up. And that makes it easier for us to talk with the kid about it. So it starts there. The ALSIP, the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems, sets the stage for all that is to come. Because now we can prioritize. Now we can decide what we're working on and what we're not. And now we can start thinking about how we're going to solve it. Uh, So now the question was, using the three plans, what would that look like? And and the email is titled, Question on When There is a Safety Issue. Um, Sometimes plan A is necessary on an emergent safety issue, in which case, and here's plan A. I'm not saying I'm recommending this on this problem especially, but, you know, fighting is a safety issue. But here's what plan A would sound like. Plan A is when you're solving the problem unilaterally through imposition of adult will. And the dead giveaway is the words, some variant of the words, I've noticed that, excuse me, I've noticed that, that's plan B, I've decided that. Here's what it would sound like. I've decided that because you're fighting on the playground, you're not going out for playground anymore. I've decided it. That's plan A. It doesn't solve the problem. 
it's likely to set in motion challenging behavior in the kid. And not only is it unilateral, it's also uninformed. Because we don't have the slightest idea what's going on on the playground. Not the slightest idea. So have we made things safer by doing plan A? I don't know. Maybe artificially, but the problem still isn't solved. Plan C. That's when you're dropping the unsolved problem completely, at least for now, as an act of prioritizing. I don't think we can drop this one. It's a safety issue. It's going to be a high priority. Safety issues are high priorities. That doesn't mean they're getting handled with plan A. Just because something's a high priority doesn't mean it's plan A. High priorities can be handled with plan B, too, and I'm thinking this is a high priority that's going to get handled with plan B. All right. Now, finally, we're ready to start talking about plan B. Plan B, as you may well know, but I don't want to take anything for granted, consists of three steps. The empathy step, the define the problem step, the invitation step. The empathy step, and I'm going to be going through this pretty quickly here, the empathy step is where we are gathering information from the student about his concern or perspective on the unsolved problem, in this case, difficulty resolving conflicts with Tommy during box ball on the playground, his concern or perspective on that unsolved problem. We want to know. We want to know his take on what's getting in the way, his take on what's going on. That goes on in the empathy step. The empathy step usually begins, and this is where I screwed up a few minutes ago, with the words, I've noticed that. Big difference between plan A, I've decided that, and plan B, I've noticed that. I've noticed that, and then what we're doing is we are inserting the unsolved problem into the sentence. I've noticed that you're having difficulty resolving conflict with Tommy during the box ball game when y'all are at recess. What's up? Now you're off and running. Uh, six things could happen after you say, what's up? Possibly number one, he says something. Possibility number two, he says nothing. Possibility number three, he says, I don't know. Possibility number four, he says, I don't have a problem with that. Possibility number five, he says, I don't want to talk about it right now. And possibility number six, he gets defensive and says, I don't have to talk to you. There they are. The six things that frequently happen after we say what's up. The one we're going to talk about today is he says something. We'll save the other five for another time. He says something. The reason I want to talk about that today is because if he says something, then I promise you whatever he says first is not going to give you the clearest possible sense of his concern and perspective on this unsolved problem, which means you're going to need more information, and you're going to have to probe for that information, a process I call drilling, drilling for information. Drilling consists of a few different components, not all of them at the same time, but whichever one seems right 
at the time. You're drilling. If you're asking questions beginning with the words who, what, where, when, you're drilling. Who are you having a problem with during box ball? What what are y'all? I think we already know who. Uh, Tommy. What what are y'all getting into it over? What's going on that's causing you guys to have what 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 conflict are y'all having difficulty resolving? You're drilling another strategy. If you're asking the kid why the unsolved problem occurs under some conditions and not others, you know, you and Tommy seem to get along very well uh, when you're working together in math. What's going on during recess? You're drilling. You're drilling if you're asking the kid what he or she is thinking in the midst of the unsolved problem. When you and Tommy are playing box ball together, what, what are you thinking when y'all are having trouble resolving conflict? Can I get good information there? You're going to understand better when you're done with that drilling strategy. You're drilling when you're breaking the unsolved problem down into its component parts. Many different problems have components. Reading has components. Writing has components. Getting your stuff put away so you can get going at the beginning of the school day getting packed up to go home for school at the end of the day, from school at the end of the day, different components. Kids sometimes don't think in components, so they have sometimes trouble telling us what's getting in their way unless we break it down into its component parts, another drilling strategy. And then the final drilling strategy is reflective listening, just simply saying back to the kid whatever he just said to you, along with clarifying statements like, uh, how so? I don't quite understand. I'm confused. Can you say more about that? What do you mean? You're drilling. You want to have the clearest possible sense of the kid's concern or perspective on this unsolved problem. And, of course, the reason I keep emphasizing that we're doing this proactively is because it's hard to imagine getting that information in the heat of the moment. Next step is to define the problem step. That's where you're getting your concern entered into consideration. My bet is that adults would have very important concerns that about this kid having difficulty resolving conflict with Tommy during box ball on the playground, probably related to somebody getting hurt. Adult concerns usually fall into one of two categories sometimes both, how the unsolved problem is affecting the kid, how the unsolved problem is affecting other people. Presumably fighting is affecting other people, and fighting may also be affecting the kid, so it might be both. You'd want to be explicit about those effects, and now you've got your concern on the table. And then the invitation is where you are inviting the student to brainstorm solutions that address the concerns of both parties, that we've really worked hard 
to enter into consideration during those first two steps of Plan B. When the concerns of both parties have been addressed, this problem is solved. I always say that the solution has to meet two criteria. It's realistic, meaning both parties can do what they're actually agreeing to do. And it's mutually satisfactory, meaning the concerns of both parties have truly and logically been addressed. That's how I'd handle fighting on the playground. Plan A, unilateral, uninformed, problem-solving, sometimes makes us feel safer because we believe that we have taken decisive action to prevent the problem from occurring again. But because solutions arrived at with Plan A are unilateral, are uninformed, involve imposition of adult will and don't usually actually solve the problems that are giving rise to the behavior we don't like. Plan A doesn't usually work. And yet, Plan A is often what we mostly do to solve problems in schools. And that's why we keep solving the same problem over and over. It's still unsolved. Plan C is just where we're prioritizing because we can't work on everything at once, but as we've already said, we can't plan C that one. It's going to be a high priority. In collaborative problem solving, high priority unsolved problems are solved using Plan B. And there's the answer to the question. How would we handle that unsolved problem using the three plans? First, we'd come up with a highly specific wording of the unsolved problem, starting with the word difficulty and then continuing with the expectation the student is having difficulty with. Then we do plan B. And um, if that description of Plan B was too fast, and it may have been, well, there's about 80 programs in the listening library for educators. That, That listening library alone has about 80 programs that can help you do Plan B even better. And the Lives in a Balance website has streaming video, so you can see how it looks when it's being done. And there's more video coming. And... Let's move on to question number two, shall we? Let me pull it up here. Hello, a couple of colleagues, this came in in July as well, and I promised each other to read Lost at School during the summer break as a takeoff to working with relationships in our class in Denmark, grade two. Wow, Denmark. I just got back from Denmark. I left Denmark at... mm, noon yesterday and got back into these here United States at around uh, 3 p.m. I love Denmark. I always gain about three pounds when I'm in Denmark because, as I always tell them, they got good bread and it's always there. 
there's other countries that have good bread too, but they got good bread in Denmark, and it's always there. And bread and chocolate chip cookies and marabou milk chocolate from Sweden are my weaknesses. So I always come back from De- they got marabou in Denmark too. I always come back from Scandinavia three pounds heavier than when I left. Of course, if I stayed two weeks, it'd be six weeks heavier. Let's back it. We don't need to hear about all this. Here's the email. Uh, I'm very glad we did, as I'm finding the book well-written. Thank you, and very interesting. Thank you. I can recall making Plan B conversations many times before I knew what Plan B was good, and it has always worked, if not at first, then during a period of time. Children do the right thing if they can. One thing just keeps popping up in my mind. Who defines the right thing? Now, this is me talking. I learned something on my last trip to Denmark. In Denmark, kids do well if they can is actually translated in the Danish version of Lost at School as kids do the right thing. I'm not sure that that matters for the question that you're about to hear this person asking, but um, it did make me wonder if there is any difference between kids do all if they can and kids do the right thing. I think there is. Kids do the right thing if they can. Kids do well if they can. Because here comes the question, who defines the right thing? This is back to the email. To me, that is defined by geography, families, religion, time, and a lot of other factors. How do we handle it when kids get caught between different definitions of the right thing? What, what an interesting question. I mean, I've heard the question asked before. Alfie Cohn the author of many important books for educators and parents, including Punished by Rewards, um, Beyond Discipline from Compliance to Community, The Homework Myth. He's got a bunch. When he was reading Lost at School uh, before it came out, he said, what does well mean? And it's interesting. Uh, different societies do have definition, different definitions of well, and different societies and cultures do have different definitions of the right thing. But I want to make sure we're not missing the important point, whether we're saying kids do the right thing if they can or kids do well if they can. That theme is mostly intended to say that if a kid isn't doing well, it's because he's lacking the skills to do well. If he could do well, he would do well, with well not necessarily needing to be defined super clearly. In fact, when we are collaborating with a kid, we're hearing his concerns, we're getting our concerns onto the table, then the solution we come up with will actually represent a joint definition of what well means and what the right thing means. I personally have a preference for well. The right thing, I think, suggests that there is a wrong thing 
as well. And um, so I think I prefer kids do all if they can over kids do all kids do the right thing if they can. So I think now that I'm thinking about it, the right thing has a little bit more judgment attached to it about right and wrong. But you know, if a kid is having difficulty meeting our expectations, the expectations that are defined by our school, our society our neighborhood, then I'm going to assume that he's having difficulty meeting those expectations and would if he could, almost no matter what those expectations are. And if he's having trouble meeting those expectations, I would like to know why. I would like to know what's getting in his way. I'll accomplish that through the empathy step. Then I'd like to let him know why I'm concerned about the fact that he's having difficulty meeting those expectations. I'll accomplish that through the define the problem step, and then we will work together to come up with a mutually satisfactory solution that addresses the concerns of both parties without necessarily having a hard and fast definition of well and without necessarily having a hard and fast definition of what we mean by the right thing. There you go. I'd actually be rather be much more specific about unsolved problems than I would about what the right thing or doing well means. All right, one more. Let's see if I can do this one in the time that we have left. I'm going to rush here. Hi, Dr. Green. I'm a, I'm a vice principal in British Columbia, Canada, who is truly inspired by your philosophy, research, and books. Thank you. I believe what you preach to educators and parents now. My struggle to encourage change with colleagues in my school who want a quick fix and consequences for a child's behavior. They often refer to it as purposeful and that he or she knows exactly what he or she is doing. What advice can you give me in how to respond to this without feeling frustrated? Thank you. Um, here's what I wrote back, but I'm going to talk about it at somewhat greater length here. There aren't really any great sound bites to help people think differently than they've been thinking all along. This is not going to happen in one fell swoop. I don't find that seismic shifts are that common. They happen. The best option is to begin making a concerted, long-term effort to introduce people to the CPS model and have them try on the new lenses. But the key here is not speed. As I mentioned last week, on the uh, educators panel, the theme here is low and slow. The key is continuity continuity. How do we start small in our building and help people slowly but surely come? You're hoping for fast, that's going to fuel your frustration. If we don't meet people where they're at and expect them to be where they're not, that's going to fuel your frustration. Um. Let's take people where they're at. Let's introduce them to something that they may not have been introduced to ever before, the fact that behaviorally challenging kids are lacking 
crucial cognitive skills, especially in the global domains of flexibility, adaptability, frustration, tolerance, and problem solving. Let's have them try that on for size. Let's have them use the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and engage them in discussions about a specific child and how his lagging skills translate into specific unsolved problems and slowly but surely let's introduce them to plan B and give them the coaching they need to do it well and then let's see what happens. If we're hoping for seismic shifts, we're going to be frustrated and so are they. I wish I had more time on that one, but uh, we'll keep talking about that as the year goes on. In the meantime... Talk to you next week.